the following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Emory University neuroscientist Gregory Burns has spent decades using MRI imaging technology to study the human brain. But when he and his daughter adopted, when he and his daughter adopted Callie, a skinny, shy terrier mix from the shelter, he was inspired to see if the same tools would unlock the secret of a dog's brain. Um, here to discuss his new book, How Dogs Love Us, is Dr. Gregory Burns. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Great to be here. Well, apparently, I guess, uh, Dr. Burns, according to your book, uh, we've underestimated our dogs and their capabilities. So my first question is, so what do we need to know about our dogs who love us, title of the book, and why do we need to know this? Um, yeah, so I, I get kind of two responses to this. <laughs> you know, some, some people say, you know, it's kind of obvious that dogs love us, and, you know, I didn't need an MRI to figure this out. Um, but that kind of misses the point because, you know, I'm a neuroscientist and I like to figure out how things work and why things are the way they are. Um, you know, so, so what we've been doing with my daughter and kind of the whole team is now training dogs to go in the MRI completely awake, unrestrained, and so, so the idea is use the same tools that we use in humans to figure out what makes them tick. And, and the whole point is to try to get away from anthropomorphizing and projecting our feelings onto them and, and see what's really going on there. And, you know, what's, what's amazing to me, the more we look into the dog's brains, um, I see more and more similarities to how they respond to things as to how human brains respond. And it's, it's Dr. Burns, so let's name, what are some of those things? Because this has been dubbed, I guess, the dog project. Um, and so you're saying that we're more similar to dogs than dissimilar to dogs? Well, I, um, I, I don't know if I said that, but um, the, the similarities. Um, so, so the things that I'm interested in and, and I've studied for a long time have to do with the reward system of the brain, um, whether it's in dogs or, or humans. And, and the idea is by focusing on this part of the brain, it's, it's a structure called the caudate nucleus, and it's the richest part of the brain um, in dopamine receptors. And what we've learned over the years studying humans as well as other animals is that, for example, dopamine is not a, a, a neurotransmitter of pleasure. What it does is it, it links what we want to putting our bodies into action to go get those things. All right, give us an example of that. So in humans, we, we kind of know all the things that we like, um, and we study these things in experiments. So it's things like food, um, 
Money is a big one for humans, but also social things for humans as well. So when you see pictures of loved ones or even just working with a stranger in a cooperative way seems to uh, result in activity in the reward system. And, and what that tells us is that there's this common pathway in the brain for things that we like and that will tend to motivate us to go get or do those things. And so all we did was, was after we trained the dogs to sit still in the scanner, is present similar types of things to them. So when we began, we just started with hand signals. So we trained the dogs to recognize the meaning of two hand signals. One meant that you were going to get a, a piece of hot dog, and another hand signal meant no hot dog. And we saw the same activity in, in their caudate nucleus that we would see in, in the same experiments in humans. But that, that by itself is not terribly interesting, so we, that was just a proof of concept. We then went on and started doing more complicated things like presenting smells to the, the dogs, the sense of other uh, people and other dogs in the household to try to figure out what's their most relevant social bond. And that, that's where it starts to get fascinating, I think. Yeah, all right, so explain that one. So what you're saying, the different smells that people have, the dogs and the humans, cause the dog to react differently? They may, is, is that what you're saying? The connection yeah. is different? Exactly. So, so you know, it's not, it wasn't clear from the beginning, you know, whether dogs, um, uh, the more important social cue to them is other dog smells or other people smells. Because, I mean, as any dog owner knows, I mean, they're, they smell both. You know, when you take them for a walk, they go right for the good parts of both dogs and humans. So, so that's the point of doing the imaging. When we presented smells and they were taken from other humans in their household as well as other dogs, and then we had control smells for humans and dogs that they had never met, what we found was that the reward part of the brain activated only to the smell of the familiar human, you know, someone in their household. Okay. So th- but, this is, but I have to stop you there because didn't yeah. we know that? I mean, dogs seem to know their owners. I mean, intuitively we knew that before, that if you're in a room with strangers, your dog's going to come to you because of the smell or, I guess, other cues, they wouldn't go to the stranger. Well, right, but, but the question is why. So, I mean, just kind of observing the behavior doesn't necessarily tell us why they do that. So... They might, they might come to you out of familiarity. They might come to you out of fear if they didn't, that you would yell at them. Um, you know, or they come to you just because they expect some food. So, you know, so, the, so the behavior by itself doesn't really tell us kind of what's going on in their heads. I mean, we can project on them. We think we know, but that's the point of the, the project. So, so the idea is by then looking at these structures in the brain, you know, when we present these things to them, we get a better idea of kind of how they represent their world. And so the fact that, at least for the dogs that we're studying, that we see this reward activation to the smell of a human that's not even there tells us that, that the dogs have a positive association with those humans that goes far beyond just food because there's no, there's no prospect of food in this case. So what you're saying is the dogs have the capacity to to love or empathize or, or is that anthropomorphizing the dog, putting our feelings or projecting our feelings onto a dog? Um, I, I do say that. And, I mean, I, 
there probably is a bit of anthropomorphizing there, but but that's only because um, we have to use human words to describe what you know what processes are going on in, in the dog's head. Um, but my you know my take on it is is, is it's we're using the, the brain activity as kind of a, a bridge between human experience and dog experience because we we can't we can't be a dog you know we can't if we were a dog we wouldn't be able to speak. So we have to use the, the brain as this bridge. So if we present things to humans and that we know that humans like and we can ask them, do, you know, what are you experiencing? And then we can reference the activity in the brain when a human experiences something and we see in the dog similar patterns in similar parts of the brain, then to me it's not so much of a stretch to say that the dogs are experiencing something similar to love if that's, if that's the word that we want to use for that circumstance. Why do we need to do this? Okay, as you're describing it, we're kind of, um, I guess one of the, the reasons some of the, the, the project got underway was you want to improve the relationship between dogs, canines, and humans. And, but for what reason, in practical terms, why do we need to know this and what are we going to do with the information? So, you know, there's, dogs are extremely common in the world. There's, you know, maybe 10% of the human population is, is the dog population. Um, so even just in, in the U.S., there's, you know, anywhere probably from 50 to 70 million dogs at least um, in people's households. So, you know, they're an important part of human culture. Um, and, they've, and they're the first, really, the first animal to live with us. So, so to me... They're in a special position. So the practical benefits of this, there's, there's several. So just kind of on the surface, dogs are important to people. So anything that we can do to understand what makes them tick improves both the welfare of dogs and, and the people that they live with. Um, because, you know, as we know, there's many problems that dogs have that lead, you know, to a pop, uh, an overpopulation in shelters and, and, frankly, a lot of euthanizing going on and these these include things like anxiety separation anxiety when you know the dogs who are left alone during the day you know destroy the house um, these are the types of things we're trying to understand so we don't just looking at the behavior doesn't tell us necessarily what's going on in the dog's head so by using brain imaging you know we get a better idea of whether for example separation anxiety is due to uh, too strong a bond with the person, or is it uh, an issue of some kind of trauma? Um, we should be able to tell that. I want to. This is interesting to me in the sense of you know I'm a social worker and, and a therapist, and, and a lot of people listening to the show are that, and counselors, etc. And dogs are used as therapeutic jobs. I'd like to kind of focus on that too, because I mean you could translate all this information. I would think in a in a positive way for well dogs that you use for therapy in nursing homes in uh, for people with disabilities, uh, even dogs who and, and I'm I'm fascinated by this, and I don't know if your research has covered this, but dogs who actually can sniff out cancer, for instance, breast cancer, and I think there are other cancers. I know they can sniff and tell whether someone's going to have an epileptic seizure or not. How does this fit into the research that, that you've done? Yeah, this, this is actually very cool stuff. So, um, so right now, our, our dog project is growing and continues to, to grow. We have actually 25 dogs currently active in the project, of which roughly half of them have gone through the MRI, or what we call MRI certified. Now, 
of the dogs who've gone through the project, the actual MRI, about half of them are service dogs or um, kind of more accurately, they, these are dogs that were bred and raised to be service dogs, but for whatever reasons washed out of that program because, um, I don't know, some, someone saw something that they didn't think would be a good match with people. But we have this, this population of, of service dogs that we're studying, and even with only a dozen or so dogs, we're already beginning to see differences in how their brains react to all the things that we're doing than uh, compared to the non-service dogs, like my dog, who's a rescue. So we're actually kind of in talks and trying to design um, new experiments as, as ways to figure out, for example, what makes good service dogs. You know, what's the right kind of uh, reward activity in a social setting that could tell us whether this dog's going to be good or bad for service or therapy. Well, would it be the same thing? We'll take your profession, for instance. What makes a good doctor smart? Uh, intelligent. There has to be a degree of intelligence, um, perhaps number one. And number two, uh, you know, the, it the, the correct emotional response, empathize with their patients. Uh, would, would that be the same thing? Are you talking about you could translate that into what would be a good service dog? I mean, are some dogs smarter than others, for instance? Well, I mean, we're not, the, the MRI is probably not a good way to test uh, uh, kind of task-solving path, path intelligence, but uh, because we can't really have the dog do much in the scanner. But what it does seem particularly good at is measuring kind of the strength of, of the reward response to social things. You know, So one of the things that we're doing right now with the dogs is we're doing an original experiment where we gave the hand signals, but now we're changing um, who gives the hand signals. So we're comparing the response to the owner doing it, a stranger doing it, and even a computer giving the signals. So we've actually spent some time training the dogs to watch computer screens. And the, and the reason we're doing that is to try to understand how much of this is driven by a social bond as opposed to just simple Pavlovian conditioning. So would you be in a position, or this research, I guess, would explain perhaps give the right family having a, the right match with the right dog? You know, maybe some dogs don't match certain families, for instance, emotionally, or they can't create the bond, just like there's something unique about what it, the, the connection between the dog and the family, or dog and an individual. Yeah, um, it's, it's probably not practical in that setting. I mean, what we're, what we're hoping is that, that this tool and this technique can be incorporated early on in, in service dog training. So right now, I mean, it's, it, it's very expensive to train service dogs, um, and the cost estimates range from twenty dollars to $50,000 for a completely trained service dog. Um, and even the groups who do training for this have an extremely high failure rate with the dogs. Um, kind of, I would say, in best circumstances, only about a third of the dogs ever complete the training and get placed with a person. Um, so where I see this helping is identifying dogs um, earlier on in the process that are good candidates and, and then as opposed to wasting a lot of time and effort training dogs that will not be good service dogs. We spend how much? Billions of dollars on our dogs in terms of every, you know, food and, and shelter and all the extra stuff that we, we get for them. I mean, I think it's the, the, that industry, the, the food industry for dogs is, is um, is 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 enormous, isn't it? 
It, it is, I, and I don't have the numbers either. But I mean, it's it's the the pet industry as a whole is a multi billion dollar industry for sure. So dogs have to be doing something for us therapeutically, not just necessarily if they're service dogs, but I think, and maybe this is part of also this research, just in terms of the well-being of anyone who has a dog or um, a family or, I mean, that that there is that, you're talking about that special bond. It, yes, I mean, definitely. I mean, you can just, like you said, you look at the economics of it, you know, people don't just spend money just to throw it away. I mean, we, we spend money on our dogs and our cats uh, because they, they give something to us and we, we value it highly. I mean, do you think dogs, I mean, dogs can replace medication. I mean, I've done a lot of work with the elderly, for instance, and people who live alone and feel isolated and vulnerable. And when you introduce a dog into their, their homes, um, it changes everything in a positive way. It, it does. And, you know, I've, I've speculated about this, but I think it's very possible that, that dogs somehow change the course of human evolution, um, you know, 15, 20, or 30,000 years ago. Um, nobody really knows kind of how dogs came to live with humans. There's all sorts of ideas about, you know, how the, the wolves, you know, helped humans hunt or they acted as guards. The bottom line is nobody knows. But one very appealing idea is that the, that the humans who took in these dog-wolf hybrids had some kind of um, social characteristics about them that, you know, uh, made them have skills or appeal to other people that they were living with, um, you know, and maybe gave them a survival advantage in such a way that, that we now have these genes that, um, that kind of represent some special social skills. And dogs could very well have been part of that, you know, kind of altering the course of, of human evolution so that, you know, we like dogs because of something that happened uh, thousands of years ago. You didn't answer the question. I'm still curious. Are there <laughs> breeds that are smarter than others? I mean, certain dogs that, certain breeds where consistently the dogs are smarter or, or not? Or does it just yeah. have to do with training? Yeah, I mean, it depends on kind of what you mean by, by smarter or, or intelligence. You know, um, there are these lists floating about, you know, ranking dogs by intelligence. But, you know, it's like people. You know, it depends on how you measure intelligence. You know, there's problem-solving intelligence. There's there would be kind of physical intelligence. You know, some dogs are going to be better at agility or doing those types of things. And then there's social intelligence. And you well, know, what about IQ intelligence? Well, I mean, but if you can apply you, that to dogs, uh, <laughs> um, I'm not sure how to apply that to dogs. I mean, you know. You, it's not clear what the most appropriate way to test intelligence in a dog is. So that would not be similar to humans because we do have certain measurements. I mean, if we're talking about IQ uh, and the, or if we're talking about emotional intelligence, emotional quotient, there are different ways of doing that, right, with humans, but we can't actually do that with a dog. Well, I think, you, I think we could come up with things um, on the emotional um, intelligence spectrum for sure. Um, but the, the, to, to measure IQ in kind of the, the human way, that usually measures kind of problem-solving ability. Um, you know, and the types of things that have been in, done in dogs in that realm, it's not really a pure test of intelligence because um, the, things, the things that dogs are the best at are really social 
in the sense that they're very good at problem solving um, by looking either at other animals or usually humans to get cues on how to solve problems. So, you know, w- would you call a dog that looks to their human to help them solve a problem dumb? Or would you, would you call a dog that tries to solve it on their own smart? I mean, it's not the same to me. Yeah, I see. Okay, so it's a different process is what you're saying. Right. And, and, and the way, you know, dogs fit in human society is really as kind of an extension of human skills. I mean, that's, we use them, we live with them as kind of an auxiliary um, tool for us in, in many ways, whether it's emotional or whether they're working dogs and they have a job to do. Well, I always notice that when you go into someone's home and they have a dog, the dog very often has the same emotional characteristics as the family. I mean, if you walk into a very you know, high-energy family and maybe anxious and nervous, and uh, you'll find the dog is that way too. And if, if someone's calm and relaxed or you feel that calmness in the humans, uh, it, it's the same with, with the dog. I don't know which comes first. I'm assuming the humans come first, but um, they sort of do take on the characteristics of the, the emotional um, dynamics of the family. Yeah, you know, people have been saying that for, for decades, and so uh, it's very hard to prove scientifically that that's true, although there, there, there are a few people studying it, and that does, there does actually seem to be a bit of truth to it. Um, but, you know, what's, what's funny about that is, is we don't know whether, you know, people choose dogs based on kind of, you know, mirroring their own uh, personality traits or, like you said, whether the dogs learn to acquire it. Yeah, maybe you could compare that to families who adopt a child. You know, sometimes the t- when, when you adopt a baby and the baby, uh, maybe you have biological children as well, and, and then you begin to see the, the biologic, the adopted um, ch- the baby or child or toddler begins to walk and talk and emotionally respond in the same way that the biological kids do. Yeah, maybe. Although, you know, I think that dogs in many ways are, are much, much more socially flexible than, than humans are. Um, I mean, that's kind of their defining trait on how well they fit in um, with, with different social groups. I mean, it's not just humans. They can, they can fit in well with other animals, too. So emotionally, dogs are more flexible. That... I think they are. I think. More adaptable. Yes, I, but then I maybe they're... it's because they need to. I mean, one of the things they need to food and shelter, and, and so you know that's kind of the overriding. Um, I guess overrides their emotional response to whomever they're with. Well, maybe, but I think I mean if we probably if we could go back, you know, ten thousand years and kind of again looking at where dogs came from, I think that is probably the defining event that separates dogs from wolves. You know, dogs. Their main ability is, is fundamentally it's a social ability and social flexibility to adapt to different um, environments. And these are things that wolves do not do. They, you know, they're social animals, but they're social only with other wolves. So what was that? You said 10,000 years ago? That, that, that's when, that, when they separated the dogs from the wolves? I think it's probably further back than that. Nobody really knows. The, the, the earliest dog fossils only date to 11,000 years ago, but I think it's very likely that the process started long before well, that. I mean, this is really exciting research. So where are we going to go or where are you going to go with this now? Where are you at? I mean, 
So, I mean, now that we have more dogs trained, I mean, this has become kind of a, a, a great citizen science project here in Atlanta where we have the dog community participating. With more dogs, now we can start to answer questions about the differences between dogs. So up until now, we've just kind of been studying how the average dog's brain responds and kind of thinking about dogs as just a unitary concept. But now we can start to tease apart the differences. You know, why are some dogs good at some things and not others? You know, the, the, the experiment that we're launching soon, I'm actually very excited about because we're, we're starting to study the idea of, of cognitive control in dogs. Um, same ideas as in humans. Um, um, things like cognitive behavior therapy, where we're trying to understand how dogs can either have or learn to inhibit um, certain impulses. So give us an example of that. So, so I have three dogs in my house, one who's the star of the dog project, and the other two who are also rescues or not. One is a particularly problematic dog. He likes to bark incessantly. Um, now, it's not that he doesn't know that he's not supposed to bark or that he's not supposed to swipe food off the counter. He, he knows that, but to me, in observing him, it's more like he's scratching an itch, that he has these overwhelming urges to do these things, and he just can't inhibit that impulse to do it. And so when you look at their brains, it's not too terribly surprising because they don't really have a big prefrontal cortex, which is really the part in the humans that does these types of things. So we're going to start a series of experiments where we look at how dogs actually do accomplish inhibiting their urges and kind of how they use what little real estate they have to do that. And hopefully that will tell us how to solve problem behaviors in the future. Well, this is absolutely fascinating research. I love it. And uh, I want to, because we only have a couple minutes left, make sure that everybody knows where they can buy the book. You can go online. And if there's a website we can go to, um, Dr. Gregory Burns, How Dogs Love, um, who's involved right now in the Dog Project at Emory University. So what, uh, where, what website, where can we go to for more information about the project as well as your book? Uh, the easiest one is HowDogsLoveUs.com. Easy to okay. remember. <laughs> Very easy. Okay, HowDogsLoveUs.com. And uh, we can buy the book, obviously, at bookstores everywhere. Anything we want to leave our listeners with, uh, you know? Um, um, we... Sure. I mean, the, about the book, um, I mean, it's really a story. Um, one of the things um, that I got out of this project is, is how I bonded with my dog, Callie, who was a rescue that was not particularly demonstrative when she came into our home, but now has become my favorite dog. Callie, and you've got two other dogs as well, right? Yes. Just one last question, because I didn't ask you about your daughter, but is she still involved in the project? Yes. So so my older daughter has become very involved in the project. Um, She, to this day, denies that she's a scientist, but she's actually (laughs) coming up with ideas of her own. So um, she is a scientist. This is a family affair. It most definitely is. That's great. Well, it's been great talking to you today, Dr. Gregory Burns, uh, Emory University neuroscientist and author of How Dogs Love Us. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you for having me. 
We are going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your host, uh, and I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Well, did you know that 45% of U.S. healthcare institutions have arts and medicine programs of some sort? Uh, healing through art has the potential to ease suffering, soothe anxiety, address trauma, and transform lives, which is what social workers try to do. So, here to talk to us about his new book is Michael Samuels, MD, co-founder and director of Arts as a Healing Force. He teaches at San Francisco State University Institute of Holistic Studies and is the author of 22 books. The book we're going to be discussing today is Healing with the Arts. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Doctor. Thank you, Catherine. I'm happy to be here. That's great. Well, okay. So this is healing through the arts. I mean, um, I've been aware of this as a social worker, obviously, and been involved on a small scale with healing through the arts. But um, your book, in addition as I, uh, to stories that you have, real-life stories, is a tactical, described as a tactical 12-week plan to help anyone on their journey to healing, physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual. So... How do you heal through the arts? What, and, and we're uh, talking about, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I've, I've been involved in arts and medicine programs in hospitals for about 30 years. And as you said in the beginning of the show, uh, about half of large medical centers right now have arts and medicine programs. And they started in cancer units and they went to in AIDS units in the old times and now like in Shands Hospital, University of Florida, where my co-author Mary Lane started the program. There are 200 artists in most of the hospital. There's an, a dancer in residence, a musician in residence, a storyteller in residence. So uh, art heals 
by the power of creativity actually frees your uh, changes your body physiology it, it it awakens areas of the brain that are not being used visual and auditory areas it puts you in a state of relaxation similar to the relaxation response it profoundly affects the entire body physiology so just making art just simple creativity anything you do is profoundly healing at this point well, but when you say anything that you do, I mean, you can't just sit down and, and draw a rudimentary kind of picture, can you? And that's going to make you feel better? Okay. Um, what, for art, first of all, art for us is music, dance, visual arts, word. And when you put it all together, it's ceremony. And we say in our, the mission of my nonprofit, Art is Healing Force, was 30 years ago, how to use art to heal yourself, others, community, and the earth. And the reason we did that is because we put out a call to artists and we found that that's exactly what they were doing. Some were using art to cure or heal conditions they had. Some were using it in hospital programs to heal others. Some were using it to heal community, minority groups, or racial divides. And some were actually healing rivers. So it's, it's really spectacular. But the way it works, when you... Of course, you can't just take a piece of paper and draw a picture and, and have it be healing. But when you take the piece of paper and with intent, your brain and your body go into a shift, and it actually brings images that are self-balancing and self-healing, uh, important uh, issues that you may have, and just starts getting um, something visual on paper in front of you to start the thinking going. So, for example, if you're a veteran with post-traumatic stress, right now art is the most effective way to treat post-traumatic stress and the most effective way, <clears throat> excuse me, to treat Alzheimer's. And they take a piece of paper and they're in a center of some sort and the therapist or the, or the artist, it doesn't have to be a trained therapist, says, let's make art to heal your post-traumatic stress. And usually the first drawing is very dark. It's the memory. And then somehow our self-healing abilities, our spirit, our soul, whatever you want to say, brings in brighter images that slowly replace the trauma. So what we, what we find in arts and medicine programs with cancer patients or, or without Alzheimer's or post-traumatic stress is the creativity itself heals. All you have to do is start it, and you can start it with any media. Well, can you do it with just reading your book, Healing with the Arts, or do you need someone to guide you through it? I mean, I, I yeah. only am known as, say, in hospital settings. I've done a lot right. of hospital social work right. where you have somebody who's guiding you through the process. Right. Exactly. What story of our book is that I had been in arts and medicine programs for 30 years. Mary had been in arts, had started the biggest program in the United States with 200 artists in the 3 million square foot medical center. And it was so effective with our cancer patients, that's why it's in 45% of hospitals right now, that we decided to try to teach it. So she taught a course at University of Florida, graduate school and undergraduate school in art and healing, and I taught at San Francisco State. And we had ordinary people, just whoever was coming into the class, and we took a 12-week session and we said, let's see if we can set up a process where the person can do it themselves without a program and without a therapist. And the first mm-hmm. session, they uh, do a guided imagery and then imagine their fear of art going away because everyone's terrified of making art. Everyone says, I can't do it. And in the second session, they imagine their inner artist, what their passion would be. And the third one, they find out what they need to heal in their life. 
and the fourth one they begin. So we had such tremendous transformation and healing in our class that this book is exactly what that is. So for you or for anyone, you can take the book and in 12 simple weeks with just a guided imagery and an art making, you have unbelievable transformation. And I'm not, I'm a physician, I, I'm, a, I, I'm a serious researcher, and I wouldn't say something like that if it wasn't backed up by a lot of experience and a lot of data. Yeah, well, it sounds like it, it really does change your body chemistry. It calms you down. How do you know which, uh, you have to know what, needs to be healed, as you said, and you have to kind of yeah. activate that artist within yourself. Exactly. But how do you know maybe what the best uh, form should be for you, whether it's, it's painting or sculpture or music or dance? How, do you, how does one choose that? Let's say a veteran, because you gave that as an example, right. someone who, who has PS, uh, post-traumatic right. stress disorder. Right, right. It's, well, the way we work it in our class is we br- first we explain what art and healing is and in our book, our, uh, Healing with the Arts, and our website, we have tremendous number of examples of prog- hospital programs where people can actually see it. So they have some belief and some understanding of that they're joining a, a tremendously powerful process going all over. And then the, fir- the first exercise we do, as I say, is releasing what we call the inner critic. Because when an artist in residence in the hospital comes in the room and says, I'm the artist in residence from Arts and Medicine at University of Florida hospitals, you want to make art, everyone will say no. And you say, why? I'm not an artist. I'm afraid. Someone told me I couldn't do it. So the first thing you need to do, our, our thesis is everyone's an artist, everyone's a healer, everyone's an artist healer. And that we say after working with thousands of people. And then the next thing they do is we have them picture their inner artist. And a guided imagery for, for the listeners who don't know, it's just very simple. It's using your imagination. It's the same thing a skier does when you see them in the Olympics at the top of the gate where they're closing their eyes or what you do when you're planning your day and you picture going to the bus or something. So we say close your eyes and see the artist that you're passionate about. When was the last time you loved making art? When you were a ballet dancer as a little girl, when you were drawing planes as a, as a and beginning in high school, and most of us lose that in our careers because art isn't necessarily the best career for people, so they stop that, and the, the pre-med students that we have in our courses were pianists in, in, in school, and you find that one. We call that your passion. So why, Dr. Then, Samuels, is that the first thing when schools are having money problems, monetary problems, that they take away yes. the, the arts programs? To me, this is... It's beyond, it, it, it's, it's dangerous, I would go as far as that, because arts are healing to yourself, others, community, and the earth. So when you take away these programs, <clears throat> you're, I think, I make very large statements because I've been doing this for so many years. Right now, I think art adds 100% to any healing that someone does. If they're a cancer patient and they're getting, going to the oncologist, if they make art, they'll lower their need for pain meds, they'll lower the side effects of the chemotherapy. So these are like life skills. Taking away art from a high school program or an elementary school program takes a, an essential life skill because I think we're hardwired neurologically to use creativity to heal. The oldest healing and the oldest art were one. They didn't have a name. They weren't called healing and they weren't called art. It was dance ceremony. That was the first way indigenous peoples healed. And what it did is it freed their healing energy, what, what, what uh, Richard Katz at the Harvard Kalahari study called boiling healing energy, and it just kind of 
release the tension, release the fear, release the stress, change their physiology to a meditative one. So it's, you know, for me, you put art back in your life, and that's what our book and our program is about. Because it's not, it really is not difficult. You can draw stick figures, and, it, and it's as powerful as drawing a, a perfect, realistic portrait. As long as what you're dealing, doing is drawing it with intent to heal and finding out what you need to be healed. It makes me think of all these artists, these famous artists. I mean, Picasso, for one, comes to mind. I mean, they led very exciting lives, sometimes drinking and eating too much. But yeah, yeah. Maybe their art is what kept them alive, <laughs> that passion. They lived to be 95 years old. He's not the only one, but he's the first one that I'm th- And I always think about that. And they lived, yeah. I don't know, in yeah. their 80s and 90s, Leonardo yeah. da Vinci, in a time when everyone was dying at 40 or 20. Or, yeah. yeah. It's, I think that was a wonderful special on on television showing the difference of lives of elderly artists, people in their 80s and 90s, with people in elderly homes who were, had, had lost the passion for living versus woke up every morning. And, and an example, you know, when we do this, the next thing you do is find out what needs to be healed. So for a veteran with post-traumatic stress, this is clear. But in our class, where we have 40 people who are just college students, we never know what they're going to come up with. It can be, we always have five or ten people who've had, or women who are victims of, of uh, sexual abuse or violence. This is prevalent in our culture. We have people with physical illnesses. We have people who don't find something in themselves to heal, but go into the community and go into a hospital program or work with veterans or work with... Uh, and so once you find out what you need to heal and make the art, it's just, it just happens by itself. And well, we have so uh, many people suffering, and I, I don't exactly, I don't know what the statistics yeah. are, but how about depression and anxiety, yeah. which most people yeah. end up, su- during their lifetime, suffer from, and what happens is, yeah. so the medical prof- profession, your profession, I mean, if you are going to the doctor and complaining about depression or anxiety, the first thing they do is give you a, or, or give you a prescription for Xanax yeah. or whatever the, right. you know, antidepressant yeah. is. They don't yeah. say, why don't you do something, you know, that has to do with the arts or, or refer you to an art therapist or, or right. that doesn't seem it, to happen. No, it's a, the, way this book, the way the whole thing started for Mary Rockwood Lane, who is my co-author, she's a Ph.D. nurse in the University of Florida Systems, and she was severely depressed by a family crisis. And she was in psychotherapy. She was on antidepressants. Nothing worked, and she couldn't even leave her house and take care of her kids. And a friend of hers who was a painter came up to her one day in the street when she was really like at the end of her rope and said, why don't you come paint with me? And Mary went to her house, took a oil paints, which is not so normal. <laughs> we use crayons and colored markers in our class and painted a portrait of herself. And the portrait showed a woman in severe, horrible despair who was crumpled. And she actually wrote, cut out my heart on it. And by the time she finished that painting, she was a different woman. Because as Mary put it in, in, her, in her description of the process, and this is, it's in our book, the story, and it's also on our website. You can see Mary, her paintings and the videos of this process. Once that woman was on the, on the uh, canvas in front of her, it wasn't in her anymore. She had already changed. She'd, she'd taken the pain, she'd visualized it, she'd faced it, she'd externalized it, and she became fascinated by the brushstrokes, by the movement, by the color. And she forgot all about the pain. She was now painting. And, oh, my gosh, so about eight paintings later, there's a picture of her facing the, 
the viewer, completely healed, happy, and she said, wait a minute, I healed myself with art. It was really easy. I did it myself. There was no art therapist, no diagnosis. No one cared what it was. I'm going to put this in the, in the hospitals. And that's how the, this fantastic program, art, Arts and Medicine at University of Florida, was born. And it seeded hundreds of programs like it all over the country through very well, do special Do we have any arts. programs here in New York? Well, let's say New York City, for instance. Well, yeah, I, mean, I would from- say that my guess is every single major hospital has it. And for a person who lives in New York City or Albany or wherever, if they just Google the city they live in, like San Francisco, and then Google Arts and Medicine, they'll find the hospital programs. Like in San Francisco, where I am right now, uh, UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, which is the largest uh, regional specialty hospital, has Cindy Perales' program, Art for Recovery, which is in the Mount Zion Cancer Center. And Stanford has Arts and Medicine. And Oakland Children's has Dance for Children. And it's so rich right now. Uh, Cindy's program at, at... Mount Zion Cancer Center has 25 people waiting list every time she does a workshop. How many, how many uh, medical schools have this as a course, or not just one course, maybe two courses? Not as many as courses, although um, Rachel Remen, who wrote Kitchen Table Wisdom, has a program called the Ishi Program, which is in half of the medical schools of the country. It's different. What it does, it takes medical students who are being essentially traumatized by medical school because it's so difficult emotionally, and she just has to make art to feel their own emotions of what it's like to become a doctor and find the healing spirit that made them go into it in the midst of all this chemistry and, and suffering. And it's, so, it's changing medical education because, uh, but of course in arts and medicine like ours, there aren't so many for, for in hospitals. And, so and I think it, it'll it's grow. It's an experiential process is what you're saying. It's not necessarily it's, they're being talked to, but they are actually going through the yeah. process. And what we do in our classes, it's, the book is our classes. There are 12 weeks in our class. There are 12 chapters in the book. And we take our students and we say to them, this is no, no memorization. No, you don't have to learn anything, in fact. But you are going to actually take either music, dance, visual arts, or poetry, a word, and heal, find something that needs to be healed and heal something in yourself. And they have to do it. And the last class, they come to the class and they present for 15 minutes. That's all they do. And their lives are completely different by the last class. The, a woman who we don't hear from during the whole semester, we don't know what's going on, she stands up the last class and she says, I'm going to do a dance to heal myself from a violent rape. And we, everybody goes, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And then she does this dance where she's actually throwing this violence off her. And dance is embodied. It, it takes your body, it takes muscle movement, it takes a large number of areas of the brain and activates them neurologically. And at the end of the session, this rape that she hadn't been able to deal with psychotherapy or drugs for years and years was pretty much gone. And this is the kind of thing that happens. So for the reader, for, the view, for your listener, um, they can do this. They can get the book or go on the website and they can just go through the 12-week thing and heal something in their life, their family's life, their children. They're a, a, grief, a grief from a death. It's, uh, art is fantastic for grieving for, about uh, solving grief for, in well, a you death can situation. Well, you can put social workers out of business then, I guess. 
Well, we don't, I, we don't look at it the other way. It's, the way we look at it is art therapy is a wonderful field with trained people. Expressive yes. arts is a wonderful field. Social work is a about, wonderful because field. Because this is a big topic now uh, with the Affordable Health Care Act and, yes. and just with the aging population and baby boomers. I just want to spend like the last few minutes talking about how this, uh, how art healing with art or healing with the arts uh, confronting the end of life issues with art and healing because we have so much of that. I mean, an end-of-life stuff usually ends up be- being medicated to death, literally. Yeah. Um, and, and so how does that fit in to the you know, end-of-life it's, hospice care? Yeah, it's right now arts and healing. It's, it's been involved in end-of-life for a long time. The first way it was officially involved was Teresa Schrader-Shoker who did harp playing in hospices because when, when people in a hospice who are dying really close to end-of-life hear harp being played, it's almost like going to heaven. It's unbelievably beautiful. And now most, a, lot of, a lot of hospitals and hospices have large harp programs. But we also do storytelling at end-of-life, where a storyteller will come in and the person will tell them the story and they'll write it down, which is deeply moving for everybody. And the, the th- one of the things that's been fascinating to research from MIT this year that showed when someone has a traumatic memory of any kind and they see that memory faced on, and then they do something beautiful while they're experiencing that memory, the memory's actually replaced. And so it's, it's like it's neurologic, the wiring has changed. So when a person has any kind of, at end of life, if there's unresolved issues, and they're playing the harp, those issues disappear and the harp comes in, and they hear this wonderful music. So it's, uh, it's extensively used in hospice right now. I wasn't aware of that, about, and I always love yeah. the harp, and I've heard harps at yeah. weddings kind of at the other end of the, of the yeah. human life yeah. cycle, but not yeah. in, in, in hospice. So, yeah, there yeah. is something about the harp that is like on your way to it's, heaven. It's, and, it's yeah. amazing. And when my father, who was 95, was in the hospital for one of his last hospitalizations, it was at Marin General in, in San Francisco Bay Area, and they had a strolling guitarist and she came in their arts and medicine program. And she came in the room, and he was in severe pain that couldn't be touched by pain meds, and the guitar playing changed, changed the whole thing completely. So if you play guitar yourself, and you've got a grandfather with Alzheimer's, you can play songs from his childhood, and he'll wake up. It's, it's, you know, our message kind of right now, I make this grandiose statement that, that art really adds to any healing situation, and it's not difficult. You don't need a therapist. You don't need a diagnosis. And our book is a guidebook, but it's not a difficult one. You're not, we're not teaching you uh, how to become a, a painter who's going to sell things in a gallery and become famous. We're, we're, we're telling you that your own creativity heals everything in your life. It's so simple, and, and yet it's so, I don't know what the word is, not necessarily profound, but it's so simple, and it's so, when you're describing particularly in hospice and end of life, yeah. what about, you know, music coming in and playing? Instead, what they do is turn on a, I mean, in reality, yeah. Yeah. they turn on a television, and that's what right. you're watching at yeah. the end of your life, some it's, television show. Yeah, the re- your, your audience can, your listeners can feel it in their bodies. If they, if all you have to do is imagine in your mind someone playing harp for you when you're, when you're suffering and you can feel it. Or someone, a child with leukemia in a cancer unit, the dancer comes in with scarves and the, the rooms, the shades are drawn, everyone's depressed, the child is in pain and chemotherapy side effects. They just move a blue scarf and their eyes open and then the mother holds the other end of the scarf and suddenly you can feel it as, the, as your arms raise and drop. 
you know things are changed, and it's it's very profound. And, Dr. And Samuels, did you see the YouTube? This was on YouTube a couple of days yes. ago, and, and it was yep. the, of the yep. gynecologist who was about yep. to have both her breasts removed, double mastectomy, right. in San right. Francisco. Was it your hospital? Yeah, she was. Uh, she was Cindy Perlis's. She's from Cindy Perlis's Arts. Art for Recovery program. Yeah, well, and she, is, said, talk she got about used that, to making art and music, it. so she did this wild thing that's now viral on YouTube. And if you look at it and feel it, actually in your body, you can see it changes her whole way of being and the staff so that that operation, I would bet that complications for the whole procedure, her recovery is shortened, the uh, staff's relaxed. This is very, very powerful. I mean, everybody, not, we didn't really describe what was going on, but right before the surgery, she was up there dancing, and so was the rest of the staff who were about to right. participate in her surgery. And it exactly. was like... That was what she did. She did it as an arts and, arts and medicine intervention. One of the things I like to say is that this whole field is so new and so old, but anyone who does it can be... She, did, she invented this. No one had ever done this before. This was her project. Just like we say in the class, what are you going to do? She used music and dance to heal preparation for surgery. That was her project. So if you, your listener picks up our book and says, wait a minute, I'm going for surgery next week. I can do sculpture for the week before with clay with my children, and that will relax me tremendously. I won't worry about it. Or something like that, something yeah. very simple. Yeah, well, that's a good example, too. I mean, you can go in. I mean, I have a friend who just went in for minor dental surgery, and, and the, the, but, but very concerned. And, uh, he, you know, the night before or two days before, he gets these terrible back pains. And the reason why, I mean, he was just anxious. Um, stress, yeah. And, yeah. Stress, yeah. And then yeah. once the surgery was done, the back pain mm-hmm. was gone. But as you describe it, yeah, if you just had some of this, you know, play some music or play right. an instrument. Or, uh, right. You, yeah, and you don't well, necessarily have to A lot of dental take... offices right now have, pe- have people with earphones and iPods listening to music during procedures. Yeah. So that's another use of art and healing. And we, we tell everyone, I tell everyone, if you're going to go to the hospital and get any kind of procedure that's a comp, that's maybe discomfort to you, make, take your iPod and make yourself a Spotify or uh, tape of the music that you love the most and do that while, during the procedure. Yeah, that's you know who does too. that? You know, we're always criticizing, I, no, always, but we do criticize young people for always, you yeah, know, to having, right. that, you know, but they do that. I mean, if you that's see right. them in a hospital situation or a doctor's office, they've got their music going, and, and right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, they know. It's, I think it's, I, I say again, we're hardwired for this. It's the way our brain works. I mean, right now, Yo-Yo Ma in Colorado is, is doing mute cello with veterans with post-traumatic stress. And Oliver Sacks, the neurologist, is, calls it musicology and just uh, wrote a book on, on using music with, with neuro, all neurological disorders because it really changes the wiring of the brain. It, you, you use areas that you weren't using before because they're awakened by the music. Well, we have to say goodbye, and I really enjoyed this interview, and I just want to uh, mention that Michael Samuels, MD, co-founder and director of Arts as a Healing Force, and uh, his new book is Healing with the Arts. You can go online, go to the website. What's the website? Where do they go to? Healingwiththearts.com. Okay, healingwiththearts.com. And and the book is Healing with the Arts. And you can buy that at bookstores everywhere and online. Thanks so much, Dr. Samuels. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. So did I. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. I'm your host on uh, VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio, The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, Have a great day, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.